Can you hear me? Can you hear me in the cars? Good morning. As we begin this morning, I have one special word I want to say to you. Potluck. Gotta love a good potluck. Excited about that. Thank you for joining us. Glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, For those in the parking lot and those in the building here, praise God. So uh, as we get into our our lesson this morning, I kind of want to just review quickly what we talked about last week. We talked about these strange in-between times that we live in now. And I asked us to think a little bit philosophically about what that means, because while it's one thing to say the kingdom of God is now here and available among us, it's not the only kingdom available to us. Uh, Its final culmination has not yet come to pass, because we still have to deal with a lot of horrible and ugly things in this world. And so we continue that prayer with the saints who've prayed this, generations who've gone before us. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it already is being done in heaven. Uh, Because the kingdom of God is not the only kingdom available. It's not the only kingdom that will distract you. It's not the only kingdom that will potentially harass you and demand things of you. And uh, we still don't live in a time where every knee has bowed and every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's still a lot of knees that have not bowed. So I called it the War of the Kingdoms. So not the War of the Worlds, but the War of the Kingdoms that are fighting. The Kingdom of God versus all the other kingdoms available out there to us. And just let me say, you know, not every kingdom uh, is an enemy kingdom. There are a lot of good kingdoms out there. And uh, I think about the kingdom of Calvin, the highest uh, uh, potential for my life is to take kingdom Calvin and align it with God's reign and the kingdom of God. See, the kingdom of God is the umbrella, and it calls all other kingdoms to pay tribute and calls them into submission. So we ask several questions. Why is it so hard to trust Jesus' words that God is going to be there to take care of us? Well, sometimes there's not a clear advantage that we're given if you just look at the circumstances of life in this world, if you look closely, there's, there's great advantages just that come from living a life free from sin and living a life that uh, uh, you're not marred by all the garbage and you live with some wisdom with uh, your relationships and wisdom with your finances. You escape a lot of hardship that the, most people in this world go through. Uh, just by living the kind of life that the Lord calls us to. But there's not necessarily a clear uh, sign that you get some get-out-of-jail-free card, that you're never going to go through tough things, you're never going to suffer just because you say Jesus is Lord and you claim Him. 
And then most of us, we try to do everything we can to avoid actually relying on the Lord. We don't want to be dependent on anyone for anything, and most especially God sometimes, which is a hard thing. But we all come to that place one way or another where we're forced to turn loose, and we have no choice but to depend on Him. And sometimes this is hard for us because we're not exactly clear that God has our best interests at heart. We know he's got this big plan and it's going to be, come to fruition. But what about Calvin when Calvin wants to be comfortable or hungry and wants to be fed and, or fill in the blank? And maybe some of my wants and desires are selfish and petty. Was God going to take care of my selfish and petty needs? No, I think I better take care of that. I don't want to wait around for his lack of an answer. Or, so we, we, we tell ourselves all kinds of narratives in the way we act and in what we, what we do. And so there are several things I tried to point out about uh, why it's hard for us sometimes. Uh, first of all, uh, God does not typically deal in the irrefutable or undeniable, meaning he doesn't, he isn't like fireworks in the, so, in the sky that are so clear that you have no choice but to believe. You always have a choice, and uh, every person, he, ha, he gives us the keys to our own heart, and that's why praying for people's hearts to change, it's a, such a difficult thing is because uh, we get to make that choice ourselves, and God does not coerce us. And he, as much as we would love that, as much as we pray for that for relatives, uh, people who we love, he invites, he woos, he does not force himself on anyone. Uh, but if you're in that place and you're having to pray that prayer for a, a heart of a loved one to change, don't give up. Don't give up. The Lord hears those prayers too. Uh, and another difficulty about, you know, the evidence that we see uh, in this world, we get to interpret that ourselves. And so I can see one set of circumstances and I think, well, the Lord is providing, clearly providing for me. And other person will look at that same circumstance and think, ah, oh, I did a pretty good job. Maybe it's just karma rewarding me or... Uh, um, my own smarts or my own wits or my own it's the king of Babylon who says look at all I have made and what I have done and then is cursed by God and just like that his mind is gone and he's eaten he's eaten grass on the hillside like a, like a cow like a beast of the wild or a beast of the field and go that quickly so we all get to interpret these life situations. Is it going to be gratitude, or am I going to just say luck, or myself, or everyone gets to make that call for themselves. And so sometimes this lack of empirical evidence is not really the issue as much as it is uh, this issue of interpretation. Uh, it's a lack of heart. It is a lack of imagination. It's a kind of pride that says, this is all there is. There can't be anything else. There is no mystery. There's no ambiguity. This is, 
That's a certain kind of pride that says that, that does not leave room for the possibility of a God who loves and a God who cares. And well, God is not interested in spiritual robots. He wants us to search. He wants us to be uncomfortable. He wants us to struggle. He wants us to grow. He wants us, in the end, to make a choice out of freedom. And uh, unless there's free will, unless I'm given a real choice, I don't think there is real love because of the way that love works. <coughs> if that love is real, it can't be forced, can it? So God takes a tremendous risk uh, uh, not being more overt, and yet it is the only way, it seems, than what the, the way that he's created that um, I can really choose him, and my choice really means something. Well, today we're going to be talking about the strangeness of our Messiah, because he's a strange guy, and he gives us a strange call. Uh, and it's a call that we fight against. And his call itself is an affront to us trusting him uh, completely because it demands, makes certain demands of us and costs us certain things. So Paul says it this way, <coughs> we preach Christ crucified. The anointed one crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Jesus was a stumbling block to Jews because he broke with the common understanding of what the Messiah would be doing and the kind of kingdom that he would establish. Um, it's great, Lord, that you're multiplying loaves and fishes, but we really need chariots and and swords, and multiply those, and set up your earthly kingdom, and then everything will be good. And uh, so it, we'll talk about just how dis, di, dissonant Jesus, uh, his role of Messiah was to Jewish thinking, a suffering Messiah. It was, it was inconceivable for them, a stumbling block. But on the Gentile side, um, Jesus challenged all the common understandings about what power is and who has power and how do you wield that power. And all of these variations of teaching about the, how the first will be last and the last will be first, it sounded like sentimental gibberish to a Greek or a Gentile person. So there's this kind of just, I don't know, I was thinking about a country song I heard. I know everybody says money can't buy happiness, but it could buy me a boat, and it could buy me a truck to pull. You get that kind of sentiment, don't you? There's a, there's a certain truth that that uh, displays. And uh, so some of what Jesus says, it sounds like, you know, that's just not realistic. It's not practical. It's not tangible like a boat or a truck pull a boat and give me that and then I'll figure out the happiness thing and if you give so 
But what is it that made him unacceptable to the Jewish people? Well, the scriptures give us a whole lot of insight into what that uh, looks like and what that might be. So he did certain things that were very strange to them. He didn't keep Sabbath very strictly. Uh, he, he was kind of free with certain things that people thought, no, you need to be strict about. Like uh, ceremonial cleanliness and washing hands and their, their, their laws and rituals. Uh, he was known as a guy who kept bad company. Uh, uh, publicans and harlots and foreigners, uh, women, it just, the list would go on, and it raised a lot of eyebrows. How could someone who is a holy Messiah of God associate with the likes of these? Uh, he was harsh with religious leaders, specifically, and uh, he does not mince words, and it's, it's amazing how cutting those words were and how critical. And uh, the Pharisees recognized this. And said, you insult us. How do we... Well, another thing that was very strange about him was he claimed a special relationship with God. In John's Gospel, he says, uses the word Abba. That's a child's word. Daddy. There's a certain level of irreverence and intimacy at the same time that's communicated by that word that would be very hard for people to be like, wait a second, what are you doing here? How do you say that? And then he, uh, to add to that blasphemy, he would say things with this sense of authority. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you, or the prophets of old who would say they would couch their oracles in language of thus saith the Lord where Jesus himself comes saying truly truly I tell you that would be <coughs> a difficult thing for a Jewish person and then uh, finally he was killed as a criminal so let's not talk about the fact that we're the ones who killed him but really if he's a messiah he wouldn't be able to be killed this way. He wouldn't suffer this way. If he really is God's, come on down from that cross. He saved others. Look, he can't even save himself. And so he was mocked. But Jesus did everything, uh, everything he said and did and the way that he put this all together it was all there in the scriptures. It was all, the, all of these stories are there in the scriptures. It was just hidden from people because they did not want to accept this kind of Messiah. Uh, because Jesus took the role of Messiah and subsumed it and drew it together under the prophecy specifically of the second part of Isaiah and the servant, the suffering servant. And so the Jews had rejected the servant of Isaiah as, and, the, and the Messiah, all the prophecies of Messiah. They had said in their minds, these are two very different things. Because Messiah is about power and restoration of kingdom. Messiah is about glory. Uh, undefeatable. 
and the suffering servant, they would put in language of, well, it's about the nation. It's our national suffering. It's, it's uh, well, we don't know exactly what it is, but it's not Messiah. That's very clear. And so when Jesus came uh, with the power and authority that was clear, his acts, the miraculous acts, clearly pointed to his Messiahship. And then he wrapped that into the actions and language of the suffering servant. That was a stumbling block for Jewish people. That was the reason why he was rejected, I think, largely. And we know that Jesus took on this servant role just because he said these words himself and from what the, how the story unfolds through his disciples later on. When he, and it begins at this place where the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is handed to him and he unrolls it and finds a certain section that has this language of the servant and says, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. It's impossible to miss the actions of Jesus' life and then his death to see that they are the perfect fulfillment of everything the suffering servant from Isaiah uh, embodies. The Messiah who came as servant, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. See, Jesus didn't make a show of himself. He didn't tell all the people who he healed, hey, go spread the word. Did he? He wasn't clamoring for attention. He wasn't making a, a spectacle. In fact, I see Jesus trying to spend more time and find more time to go away to a quiet and lonely place to be together with his Father. That's pretty clear in Luke's Gospel. Jesus is the definition and the fullest definition and our greatest example of what true humility looks like. Well, we also know about, about this Messiah who is the servant. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. I tell you what, that, those words have given me so much encouragement because sometimes I know that I'm the bruised reed. And sometimes my faith, it just feels like I want the fire, but all it is is a spark. And all it is is smoldering, making a little smoke. And I think my Savior will not extinguish that. Jesus was able to see the spark of good in the most unlikely people. He is a Savior who is forever seeking the lost sheep who will leave the 99 and go after the one who is lost and missing, who is patient with his disciples to a point, these disciples, they seemed determined not to understand him and what he was talking about, especially when Jesus began to couch his messiahship in the language of a suffering servant. It was too much for him. Well, all of these servant songs, they go and they show other 
uh, other uh, important verses, other things that are aspects that Jesus clearly embodied in his Messiahship. The Sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. You, I think about that, and that is how Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, got to, he got to be instructed by God. He knew from his Father. He was given this, this tongue and these words. Words that will sustain the weary. Build up the brokenhearted. How wonderful it is to just... I get, I get echoes of this sometimes. Uh, I woke up this morning in dreams, and the Lord gave me my sermon for next week. And I'm more excited about that sermon than this sermon. And the Lord just does these things for us. He instructs our hearts. He instructs our tongues through the Holy Spirit, gives us things that are beautiful to say and actions that are beautiful to do. The problem is, except for Jesus, every one of us have been rebellious. Everyone else has has at some point or another drawn back and said, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. Uh, You let someone else do that, Lord. Jesus was not like that. He was not rebellious, ever. So Jesus was the only, uh, the only student in God's school who always did what he was told and always turned his homework in on time, never cheated. So much so, he trusted his father that at the very end, when humanity has done his very worst to him, he still is able to say, uh, knowing what was coming, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting because the sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. Another great verse. He suffered shame uh, on our behalf. All right, so he was not rebellious. He didn't draw back. Isaiah 54 and 5. He bore shame, uh, did not hide his face from mocking and spitting. Isaiah 56 and 7. He suffered uh, himself to be crucified like a lamb led to the slaughter from Isaiah 53.7. So it's very clear that Jesus has a particular understanding of what Messiah means and what Messiah will do. And it's a hard pill for these Jews to swallow. Nobody wants, say, uh, nobody wants a Messiah who acts like this, who does like this. But the truth of this, the Messiahship of Jesus, it was always there in the Scriptures. They just didn't want to see it and didn't want to put it together that way. But these beautiful servant passages, one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit gave that, those words to Isaiah 
hundreds of years before Jesus was going to come, is that God knew that Jesus would need these words. And so those words are there, given through the Son as well as the Father and the Spirit. And yet, in in the mystery of the incarnation, they were there for the Son to be discovered and encouraged and to understand his role as God's anointed more clearly. Beautiful thing. You see, I think from a very early time on, Jesus knew that his ministry would end in rejection and in death. And he knew that he was the servant. And so it's a great irony for us that the kind of the kind of Messiah Jesus was, the Messiah that we most desperately need, is also the Messiah we are most likely to reject, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. He can be a stumbling block for one group and just this Christian business, whatnot. It just sounds like foolishness to so many because we all know it's about power and money and getting everything that I can get and taking care of myself. And he who dies with the most toys wins. And, and just the very humility of Jesus, it is simultaneously the thing and the Messiah that we need the most. And it's not that any of us are trying to spit in his face or pull out his beard, but because he is humble, because he does not force himself on us, he's also so easy for us to just ignore. So easy for us to say, find someone else. So easy for us to say, thanks, but no thanks. I've got my own plan. I've got my own kingdom. I've got my own ideas. There's an irony there, isn't it? The Messiah who suffers is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And the reason why I have us looking at this this morning, the thing, the, the thing that I think is important for us is when we're considering the kingdom of God and we see the reasons for Jesus' rejection is because of the, the role that he took as Messiah and the suffering servant and put those things together. I think the seeds of Jesus' rejection can teach us things about our own propensity to reject him. Things that we find offensive about him. Our Our own heart's tendency of being rebellious and drawing back. Those seeds are in each of us. And... uh, apart from a miracle of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, changing our hearts. We are going to be rebellious and draw back. See, some of us can appreciate the beauty of Jesus' humility, uh, his love, his willingness to suffer on behalf of the crimes that others commit. But the problem we have as disciples of Jesus is that he calls us to be suffering servants too. You are called to work in the kingdom. 
You were called to suffer for the kingdom, for your association with Jesus Christ. And the price of admission to the kingdom of the suffering servant is to become a suffering servant yourself. All of these things that we think were the... And that's why Jesus' message was radical. No, none of that matters. But here, you take up your cross and you follow me. And so the price of our admission uh, entering into the kingdom of heaven, the price of us coming under that reign is that we need to strip ourselves of pride and become like a little child. Strip ourselves of pride. Admit our neediness. Admit our brokenness. Stop pretending. Stop presuming. And I think it's, I find in myself that most of the time I'd rather just decide what I'm going to do and take care of myself you do you, God, and I'll do me. Isn't that blasphemous to even, to even utter that? It disturbs me. And we see that part of ourselves. We see that part of our heart. And, when, and that knowledge that we are the rebellious students and that we are the ones who have drawn back. We see that about ourselves and we hate it. We hate it. We hate that it's there. We hate that it's a temptation to us that never goes away. And really what the thing that we need the most is a miracle of the Holy Spirit in our help, in our hearts, teaching us to be able to say, like Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. And I think that's what some of Jesus means that when he says to enter this kingdom of heaven, uh, you have to be born from above, born of the Spirit. Because it's without this, the miracle of the Holy Spirit teaching us to say in our hearts, nevertheless, not my will, but yours, yours be done. The miracle of the Holy Spirit invading those parts of our, of our heart and our lives that we've said, not this, Lord. Thanks, but no thanks. I want that porn. I want that, I want that money. I want that boat. I want that pot. I have anxiety. I need that alcohol. I want... And the miracle of being born again from above is that suddenly my sexuality is not the first call, my comfort, my desire. It's the Holy Spirit invading the chambers of our hearts, and he just does it by wooing us in love to be able to say, okay, not my will, but yours be done. That is his work among us. That is what it means to become a living sacrifice, and it takes a miracle of God in our lives. 
Because the, the mission of the suffering servant is a mission of humility. And that's why it takes humility to enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the Lord recognized, and we all see it too, that he has a lot more friends at his feasts than he does at his fasts. He's got way more friends at his potlucks than he does the messes of the church, whatever those messes are. Plenty of people are going to go in there and they're going to eat to their heart's content and they're going to let themselves without a thought of the few handful that are stuck in the kitchen and clean it all up. See, the, the kingdom that God gives us is a kingdom that is entered through humility. Maybe we'll have tons of, yeah, because I preached that today, maybe we'll have tons of people in the kitchen. <laughs> See, there are times that working for the Lord, it feels joyous, it feels light, it feels glorious. It's a glorious thing for me to do my job and get to be able to preach words of truth and, and share the things I think the, that other wise teachers and, and, and the Holy Spirit has been working with me to, to craft these things. I get excited about it. I get to share these things. I'm eager to share them. I want to be the guy who gets to be there when the miracles happen, when glory happens, when we get to cast out the demons and kick down the gates of hell and witness miracles. Show me that, Lord, and yes, of course I'll be all in. But most of the time, I don't know, don't, if you don't want to believe me about this, uh, ask the elders. Ask elders' wives. Ask your church secretary. Most of the time, ministry in the church and service to the Lord, it feels more like we walk into a room and we're given a bag and a scoop and say, go clean up the dog messes in the backyard. Sometimes the kingdom work, the ministry that we're given, it comes to us that way. And I know what that face looks like because I'll say to Sadie or Haley, hey, would you go clean up Chai's messes in the backyard? And there's a face associated with that request that they cannot hide. It's there because if someone asks me to do that, suddenly I know that face and I have that face. You want me to do what? That's not... The Holy Spirit constantly is giving us prompts of good things to do, kingdom works to be worked and done. The problem is we don't hear the Spirit as clearly as we would like because we habitually ignore His prompts to goodness and good things to do. Send someone else, Lord. Have someone else do that. That's not my job. And yet we serve a Savior who goes and he washes his disciples' feet. You call me Lord and Master? That's good because that 
is who I am. How long did that basin sit there? Anyone could have grabbed it at any point. How long did it sit there and the uncomfortable looks between the disciples? Hey, I, I'm Peter. I got the, gate, the keys to the gates. I, one of you other apostles who, you know, we don't even know about, but hey, he said this about me. I, and so how long did that basin just sit there untouched by any of those? Until God himself came and took it up. And says, go and do likewise. And that's so many times the, the prompts for good things that we've been given. Lord, please find someone else for this. Please let someone else do this. Let... And so I was thinking this week, what is a good story that would illustrate this? And uh, I found a story in the Old Testament that I thought kind of fits. It's in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1 through 15, the story of a great general named Naaman. And uh, I don't know, I just put the story together with this. So. It says, Now Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So basically, this guy is a war hero. He's a war hero, celebrated by his nation. That the Lord has clearly used this man to bring victory to his nation. But he has a problem. He's come down with leprosy. And he's suffering. And then he hears rumor through servants that maybe there is a prophet in Israel who could possibly cure him. And so he gets permission to go from the king. He gets all this silver and gold and extra sets of clothing. He goes with chariots and, and horses and pomp and circumstance on this mighty quest to find the holy man of God to be cured of his leprosy. It's a great undertaking, a great journey to find a miracle of cleansing. And so he, as he goes with this pomp and circumstance and everything, the silver and the gold and the clothes and the chariots and servants, eventually Naaman comes driving up with his convoy of hummers and all the noise and the dust flying to the man of God's little hut and honks the horn. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent him a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Period. Stop. That's it. And Naaman wasn't used to being treated that way. 
See, Elisha didn't even even go out and meet him himself. He sends a servant with a sentence to say, after I've come on this quest to do this, and I'm going to... That's how most of us treat the kingdom of God and the work that God gives us to do. I've come on this journey, and this guy tells me to go dip myself in this muddy creek? So many times the gentle nudges of the Holy Spirit come to us. You want me to do what, Lord? You want me to hang out with who? You want me... Lord, find someone else to do that, please. But the story goes on. Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that surely he would come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abna and Farpa, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. This was an affront to his pride. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Isn't that a great story? You know what saved this great war hero? Servants who could see things that he could not see because of his pride. From the perspective of a servant, you are going to be able to see things that the prideful will never see. How many people go through their entire life in this world and refuse to be cleansed? Refuse to go dip themselves in the, the simple task in the river to be cleansed and washed? How many times as disciples of Jesus has the Lord asked us not hard things, not hard things, simple things that we'd rather not do, mundane things that, you know, send someone else, that's someone else's job. Surely not I, Lord. But the thing that you need most in your soul is to just let your body go and serve and obey a humble act of obedience. Just do it in humility. Do it with no one watching except the Lord's eyes on you. And you will see things 
that seem impossible to this world and the person of pride will never see and it'll just miss them completely. So that's our invitation to invite some humility into those responses of good impulses that the Holy Spirit gives us to do. And if you want to put the Lord in on in baptism, if you need the prayers of this church, you'll find me up front here and you'll get a chance to do that when we stand and sing in just a moment. But next week, Lord willing and the crick don't rise, uh, there are a few things I want to look at. What does it cost to enter this kingdom? Because Jesus is very clear there are certain costs here. We've alluded to those. We're going to get a little more specific. But I also want to be clear about the cost of non-discipleship. Because everyone is like clamoring about, oh, the cost of discipleship is so great. You ever stop and think about the cost of thumbing your nose to God, of ignoring Him completely and walking Him away from everything that He wants and desires for you in your life? There's a cost of non-discipleship as well we need to talk about. And finally, what is it that this kingdom actually gives us? We're going to talk about that. What does it give us now? And what does it give us in the age to come? In the age of the reign of God that is already breaking in to lives and hearts this very moment. So let's uh, stand and sing together.